Hey everyone, what's up? My name is River and you're listening to SCU Buzz Podcasts. Today I'll be chatting with Professor Anne Graham, the founding director of the Centre for Children and Young People at Southern Cross University. Anne has led over 70 research projects, which focus on children's rights, well-being, and safety. She is also the author of the Seasons for Growth program, which teaches knowledge and skills to adapt to significant changes to family life from death to divorce. In 2018, Anne received an Officer of the Order of Australia Medal for her distinguished service to higher education in the area of childhood studies, child rights, and children's research, as an academic researcher and author. Today, we will be discussing supporting children's well-being in the face of recent natural disasters and the global pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Anne. It's great to have you here. Thank you, River. Thanks for the invitation. So, just jump into it. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you developed an interest in children's rights and well-being. Ah, long story. (laughs) I grew up, I was reflecting on this this morning and I thought, where did it really start? And I think it was in the gene pool, really. I uh, grew up in the northwest of New South Wales in a large family of nine children and I was the eldest girl, so I was always around children. I was part, I was fortunate to be part of an extended family network where I think I experience firsthand that it really does take a village to raise a child. And so I probably came as no surprise to my um, mother. She tells me it didn't at the grand old age of five when I announced that I wanted to be a school teacher. And she tells me that I never wavered from that and I didn't ever waver from that. That's what I wanted to do and no one could convince me otherwise. So I, I know that interest that I had in children and children's lives really goes back a long way. I spent my early part of my career as a primary school teacher and they were really formative years. They were the years I was teaching in some couple of difficult, challenging school environments, uh, western suburbs of Sydney, beautiful kids, lovely families. And I learned a lot about the human spirit. I learned a lot about resilience. I learned a lot about adversity and about watching what children were capable of given the right conditions to be able to overcome quite considerable adversity. So from those years, we moved to to the North Coast and I decided to take a little bit of a change of direction and move into teacher education. And that's when I started at Southern Cross uh, University. And because one of the most important professions that I think there is a lot of important professions out there that work with children but teaching is a really really important one because most children spend most of their childhoods with teachers so that's they were privileged years really to be part of the formation of teachers but it raised all sorts of issues for me from a research perspective you know thinking about what are we doing in schools and in other context in the community to understand children's lives and to work with them in the solutions, if you like, or the ways forward, when it's particularly when it comes to their mental um, health and well-being. So that's really, you know, where the journey started with all of that. And, and I think it put me in touch, you know, we had in Australia, we'd ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child in 19. 19- 
90. We didn't talk much about children's rights because we didn't. Not sure why. I think it's because, you know, we still carried views that children should be seen and not heard. So we weren't really into kind of having them actively participate in decisions around their lives. So I've been really fortunate in the years that I've been researching in this area to be in touch with some wonderful scholars nationally and internationally who work in this area, but phenomenal people doing terrific work in the front line with children taking the evidence that we generate through our research and really looking at um, how to, to change and transform things with children and young people in those contexts. Mm. When you first started generating this research or going down that kind of research path about children and young people, did you find that you had a lot of support and interest from people around you during that time? Or did you find that you had to kind of search for that other scholarly interest or (laughs) academic interest in that kind of revenue? Well, it's a really interesting one because... Because what I was interested in really to some extent at that time was kind of inverting, if you like, turning upside down the assumptions that we have about children and young people that you don't ask them about matters that impact on them either because they won't know the answers or they won't tell you the truth, you know. And I used to laugh and say, well, in research we do with adults, do you think they always know the answers or always tell you whatever we might call the truth? So I think in the early days there was a lot of pushback, you know. It was kind of like, well, you can't ask kids that. You can't talk to them about sensitive topics. And I I think, River, that it was really a hangover from the days where we we really did think that children should be seen and not heard or that it's really the adults who, you know, know more about children's lives. But I think what it led to was that in research terms, when we were were doing research on children and about children and young people, but not with them, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense – But what did make sense is once you start to connect up with people who are really doing cutting-edge work in that space and you're looking at where we were in Australia, we we thought here at Southern Cross University when we established the Centre for Children and Young People, we knew what we wanted to do and that was first and foremost a priority. How can we create safe, ethical ways to involve children and young people in research about their lives so that we can not only hear what they have to say, but work very closely with organisations and with agencies that work with children to say, how can you best use this knowledge? So that really strong sense of um, that we can do more together than we can do on our own. And I think that challenged a lot of assumptions as well. You know, it was often we think about researchers sitting in their office doing research on their own. Well, I, I think, you know, with what we've tried now over many years, working with a terrific, fairly small team in the Centre for Children and Young People, I think we've been able to challenge the fact that we can kind of do that, you know. Mm. work work, uh, collectively together and work collaboratively with children and young people. They're the change we need to make. That's what's, you know, when we talk about transforming tomorrow, really that's what we're talking about is saying how can we work with young people who know a lot about their lives and about what matters, about what impacts on them, but also about what would help them. 
Absolutely. This question, I guess, you know, it should be a question for a young person, but seeing as we don't have a young person in the room today, what do you think it would have felt like for a young person or a child to have an adult ask them about their life for the first time or ask them how they felt about things in the world? Well, great question. Great, great question. What children tell us about the experience? So we do mixed method research. So we do both qualitative where we sit with children individually or in groups, or we do quantitative research where we're doing uh, surveys with very large samples. And usually our big studies are mixed methods. So we want to hear from children and young people in their own words what it is that, depending on, you know, what the topic is that we're focused on, what it is that they experience, what are their views about that, what helps, what hinders, what they think needs needs to change. And then we look at what that needs to look like if we were to take that to scale, when we take that to scale in, in a larger study. What children and young people tell us, if we create the conditions for a safe space for them to be able to sit down and talk with us about something that matters if we say to them things like we think you're experts on your own life and we think you probably know a whole lot that would help other kids too and it's you can sort of see them you know start to kind of sit up and look around but you know river they'll nearly or the savvy kids and they're nearly all savvy will always ask a question at the end what are you going to do with this? What's going to happen? And so that whole idea of ethical research, not just being about taking from kids, but also being able to give back. And we can't overpromise what will come out of our research. But what we can do is set our research up in ways that we're working with government departments, with NGOs, with community agencies, with health, with others that actually now get what a value add it is if they're being informed in their policy and practice by what young people have to tell us. So we always find a way of trying to loop back to those kids who've been involved in our research to share the headlines. You know, we sort of look at ways and we often have kids help us to design those outputs, you know. What do kids want to read about this? They don't want boring stuff. They want, you know, and oftentimes the kids will say, oh, they won't read that. They don't want to read that. Can't you make a little video or something and tell us what the research said? So it's really about that whole kind of ethic of the way that we go around it is that kids, we want kids to leave, not just without any harm as a result of participating in the research, but what we really want them to leave with is having felt respected, felt heard and felt valued out of that experience. Mm, that's amazing. I wish I had you around when I was a young person <laughs> to be able to be the expert on the world around me. So you co-founded the Centre for Children and Young People here at SCU. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about what that is and what that centre does? Mm. So the Centre for Children and Young People, its name is really important. It's not the Centre on Children and Young People and it's not the Centre for Children and Young People Studies. It's the Centre for Children and Young People. And that's really significant because what that centre is about is generating research that can contribute to improving children and young people's lives. So it's really about where, in a sense, research kind of meets advocacy in a, real, in a way because what we are looking at 
in working with um, children and young people, as always, as I said, it's about the change that might be made. So the Centre for Children and Young People was launched in 2004. Look, little things that you have no idea where they will go. That started, the Centre for Children and Young People started over, I want to say a cup of coffee, I think it was a glass of wine after work one day, with a couple of colleagues from the law school. So I was in the School of Education, they were in the law school, small-ish university still and not particularly research intensive in in the social science areas and we got to talking about the interest that we had around researching with children and hearing the views of children in in research so we said well what about if we put out a bit of an expression of interest you know here at the university and said anyone else doing research and interested in children and young people's mental health and and well-being well we were flooded you know we were really surprised for a small institution we were surprised at the number of people who had an interest in that for all sorts of reasons but they had an interest What it allowed us to do was to bring researchers together from different discipline areas. So we started with law and education, but soon we had some from psychology and soon we had some from health. Soon we had some from tourism. Then we had, you know, others from social science. And what that allowed us to do, because when you come in with those different kind of disciplinary lenses, if you like... It allows us to shed light on a particular problem, for example, or issue that we might be researching at at any particular time. And so that was really important. The, The next thing that we knew would be really important was engaging with those partners out there that are likely to be the end users of that research. So River, long before we ever heard about research impact, we were really unashamedly interested in not making up here at the university what we thought was worthwhile research to do, but actually listening to those partners, industry partners and others working with children out in the community and say, what are you trying to change? What are you trying to solve? What are you trying to understand? Can we talk about that? And it was out of those early discussions that we really, you know, the first, essentially the first program of research grew. We didn't know, you know, we were, oh, look, I look back on it now and I'm embarrassed. I go kind of read about it really because we were so idealistic about the whole thing and up we went to the then equivalent of the DVC research and we said this is what we want to do you know (laughs) centre and they said where's your funding we said oh we haven't got any of that but we really want to and that's what one of the things you know I love about Southern Cross University it was kind of like well how do we kind of you know do this now you know and it was very can do it was very much about saying can we make a distinctive contribution here and I really had a strong sense that we could I knew that things had changed on that landscape out there about ways we understood children we had partners on board who got what we were trying to do, children's involvement in decision-making in family law context. You know, we're talking about quite weighty areas here, not just in schools, but in also in other, you know, service areas. And we established what we called Young People Big Voice. So we had a young people's advisory group that guided all of our work and we worked with them and they mentored the new ones that, you, you know, would come into that. So we were really 
trying to kind of develop and, and live and breathe that, well, the rest is history. It's had its challenges. It's had its ups and downs. But what we've got are people working in that centre who are really attracted to the idea of research that does involve children. They're really attracted to the idea of working collaboratively. So we don't have many of the me's. We've got a lot of the we's, you know, the people who say work collaboratively. We work in research teams. We mentor new researchers coming through there. And the distinctive contribution is just the... um, Previous uh, National Children's Commissioner said here, if I want to know anything about children and young people's participation, the Centre for Children and Young People is my go-to place. And that's really what we set out to do was to make that distinctive contribution and to be able to do that ethically and to be able to do that safely and to be able to do that collaboratively with children and young people. Wow. What a huge project. What an inspiring project as well to start from such such humble beginnings to now where it is today. So it's been it's been a pretty tough few years for young Australians, particularly from COVID to widespread bushfires and quite recently in particular in our community flooding, as well as all over Australia too. How have these events impacted children and young people? Mm, yeah, big question and a good question. You know, we, we kind of talk about COVID being an unprecedented event in all of our lives, but there's a whole generation of young people for whom it has fundamentally changed their childhoods. You know, when I say childhood, I just mean children and adolescents, you know, those that we work with young people up to the age of 25, but work a lot with those up to 18 years. And what we found with COVID, if you think about the fundamental changes, learning remotely, having to learn online, changing all of their uh, social networks, being in families where there was considerable stress financially, but also emotionally, where they, there were was illness, where there were bereavements in, at that time, you know, that were as part of their families. It changed work for young people who had part-time work. It took all, all of that away. So it's really, in a sense, and we've talked about it a lot, I know, publicly and out in the community, you know, when it came to the HSC and it came to all those things that, that students sort of said, these things did impact and they did, but young people are resilient and they would say, we know there's a long tail to this. I'll tell you one thing, River, that was really interesting in some of the work we were doing at the time was when I would talk with departments of education about how that transition to online learning was going, one of the first things that they noticed was that the the, the children or young people that they expected wouldn't cope often surprised them and they did. They actually could thrive in that online environment, whereas being at school, they didn't. Whereas others that they thought it would be a walk in the park to be learning online, independent learners, all those didn't do so well. And so one of the take-home messages out of that whole COVID experiences is we can't presume to know what the impacts have been. We've had to learn to listen and listen closely to what children have needed. There's been a lot of terrific work I know that's been done in schools and in the community for catching up, if you like, in inverted commas, around some of the, the learning. One of the things that struck me during that time was that there was a big survey that was done by Mission Australia in 
right in the thick of COVID, about 2021, and it asked young people, what are you most worried about? And there were three things that really worried young people. One was COVID and the impacts of COVID and what that would mean down the track. The second thing was about the environment and climate and the impacts of climate and climate change. And we know what happened sort of soon after. We had all the natural disasters hit. And the third thing that really worried um, young people were matters related to equality and discrimination. So what they were also part of during that period, you know, that was happening kind of around the globe, things like the Me Too um, movement, uh, Black Lives matter, the environmental movement, and a lot of those kind of really important fundamental aspects of contemporary childhood that really do matter. They're our, you know, they're, they're our people of the future, they're our leaders of the future. And even though it was and remains difficult days for, for some families that have come out of that experience and certainly for young people. I think we can see that kind of, we call it, you know, in my work, we call it that kind of global cosmopolitanism, they call it, you know, <laughs> cosmopolitan movement that that young people are part of. They're not just part of the little village anymore. They're part of a global community. And they're saying, we want to make a difference. We, you know, there are things that we see see that aren't just or aren't right or aren't and we want to be able to contribute to that and it would be regrettable I think as adults that we didn't look at how we can collaborate with young people in sort of really trying to understand and progress that and then of course on the back of COVID came the natural disasters and again difficult times. Yeah and speaking of those natural disasters particularly with you being very involved with SEU and and Lismore and Lismore going through the recent flooding of 2022. Have you conducted or sat with young people following that disaster and spoken to them about what the impact was for them? Mm, We've done both. So one of the things that we've, I'd been involved in prior to the bushfires and then the floods, which as we know are ongoing and a major um, a major challenge. One of the things that really interested me was what evidence that we had about what helps young people following natural disasters that actually had captured their views or was it sort of provided by adults, involved adults certainly and caring adults and all of those things about what they might have observed helps but we hadn't sort of there there was a little bit of a um, a gap there and bit by bit with these natural disasters probably since about 2010 really with the bushfires down in Victoria and then the floods up up in Queensland that evidence base is being built so I've been tracking that because that's really important for the work that we do in the Stormbirds program I've been tracking that evidence to make sure that we're capturing always in terms of good practice what that evidence is saying supports young people. So then in working with young people in the Stormbirds program, for example, which is um, a, a program we've developed exactly for that purpose to support children and young people following a, a natural um, disaster. So there are some things that we do know, you know, are really um, important. We know that for young people, clear factual information is really important. The things we think kids are worried about are sometimes not what they're worried about. It's like, 
where are we going to live next week? And, you know, will the dog be with us? And, you know, a lot of those sorts of things. And then some of them are, how's my mum and dad ever going to come back from this? Or mum or dad or whoever it is in my family, my network, my extended network, you know, those impacts are important. We learned a lot about what children need around reassurance. You know, they need to know that when they hear the rain on the roof again, that it's not going to be another flood. They need to know if they're triggered by the smell of smoke and they're wondering what on earth is going on, they need to be reassured. So they do need those connections with warm, caring adults in their lives. And we know in a natural disaster, there are a lot of adults who are just in survival mode and it has to be that way. What young people found really beneficial, what really lit young people up was the community wrapping around them. You know, that level of support and being, you know, people caring about what happened for the people coming to help dig the mud out, people dropping food and, you know, well past the time of the crisis. And so it's all of those sorts of things that we've been able to kind of monitor and gather that's really been helpful, I think, in looking at sometimes the little things are the big things. And, and children and young people tell us that they want to be able to contribute to, you know, what is it that I can do to contribute to this kind of recovery, rebuilding afterwards? And we just see signs of that everywhere still. Mm. So that kind of um, what you just said then kind of bleeds into my next question, which was what can parents and caregivers do to support their children and their well-being during the aftercare of following these uh, natural disaster events? Yeah, well, I think it goes without saying that we can't generalise or universalise children's experiences. And what I'll always say to parents is nobody knows and loves your child the way that you do. So very often parents will have a kind of a knowing about that. But what often happens is when they're thrown off course because of events that have unfolded, I think just having some of those sort of tips for various things just to be able to stay connected with their child, to be able to offer them that comfort and that reassurance, to involve them where it's appropriate in decision making about things going forward to kind of keep them involved and engaged for children for whom that matters, making sure that they're safe, um, physically safe, but also psychologically safe and in other respects. I think it's also really important for in supporting uh, children to know where those support networks are, to know when I can't be available right now as a parent, but to actually look around my networks to know who is and to be able to link up my child with them so that there's always somebody, you know, that can be a go-to person should they need it, particularly in those kind of, at that crisis end, um, when those things are happening. So I just kind of think that, that all of those things that were happening in the relationship before a natural disaster are also really important. But I think that just keeping your child in view, just keeping them connected in small ways, hearing what they have to say, but I cannot stress enough that clear, factual, age-appropriate information seems to be 
a bit of a game changer because what children and sometimes young people don't know or can't work out, they make up. And sometimes that can be more disastrous than what the actual reality is or, or you know, have bigger impacts, if that makes sense. So... That makes a lot of sense. I would say even myself, if I don't know the facts about a situation, I will create a narrative about that, which will be far worse than than the actual information. So you authored a program called Seasons for Growth. Would you be able to tell us about that? I did. And again, one of those uh, stories about you never know where something really is going to lead. I mentioned earlier, River, about my years spent as a teacher being very formative for me. And one of the things that I found personally, I'm not sure whether this is like true for other teachers, and certainly it's um, there's a lot more resources now. But when I was teaching young people and the big stuff happened in their life, death of a parent, death of a grandparent, sometimes the death of a pet, where families separated or or divorced, where there might have been children coming to Australia under forced migration arrangements, so they were refugees in a strange country. There were all kinds of losses, if you like, changes and losses in children's lives that I felt really ill-equipped to, to be able to support them with. So it kind of, you know, sat there for, for a while. And after I'd started my career as a researcher, a consortium of three really committed sort of agencies, one education and a couple of other agencies that were involved in providing support to children and young people said, look, we know there's a program in America that is around supporting children to manage change and loss and grief in their lives. And I knew of that program because I'd looked at it. And they said, but we need an Australian resource. Would you be able to undertake the research so that we know that it's built, whatever we build is on sound evidence? And could you come up for a kind of a model or a framework or a way of proceeding with developing a program of that kind? And of course, with all these things, we'd say, where's the funding? Well, we had none. So it was a bit of a bold move. But I said, okay, I'll do that research. One thing led to another. And to cut a very long story short, I then led the development of the program program for young people in uh, high schools and community settings and then followed that on with leading the one for younger children so from six to 12 years and then so sort of two programs there so what we developed essentially was a loss and grief education program because we recognize that children need a safe learning space to be able to learn knowledge develop skills, identify support networks for when change and loss events happen in their lives. And so the imagery of the seasons was really important in that because grief, loss, is a universal human experience. And what we needed was a kind of a metaphor, a way of talking about a quite complex issue without talking about grief per se, we were talking that life is like the seasons. Sometimes there are good days. Sometimes there are challenging days. There's a to and a fro and an up and a down. And so we were able to kind of weave that into the program, get some really, really sort of cutting edge grief theory underpinning all of that. That's all hidden from view. Children don't learn anything about that. What they learn are things like everybody has a story that Most people have big feelings when things happen in their lives that create uncertainty, create change. 
we know from all of the research that having skills to be able to manage those big feelings is really critical because it's very important that young people have their agency is really important. We need them to be working on what they can influence, not on what they can't because they otherwise remain a victim all their lives of what's happened. And we we knew about, um, you know, from the research about the importance of being able to make good choices set goals and, as I said, identify people in their networks who, you know, people I know, places I go, things that I can do that would um, support me. So we needed to put that together into a learning package, which we did, um, as I said, across two, one for six to 12-year-olds, one to 13 to 18-year-olds. We um, had young people involved as part of that process of development. I thought, Maybe we trained, you know, I insisted we have mandatory training uh, for that. So we train adults as companions. That language is important, you know. They're not the group leader. They're small groups between four and seven children that come together, really safe learning space. We have the companion who kind of journeys with them through the learning process. Over eight weeks, there's a celebration session at the end. Young people and came back to us and said, it's not ending, is it? You know, can we get back together? So we built in, we built a couple of reconnector sessions so that they can come back together and continue to kind of have affirmed what they've learned out of that process. So very big sort of story, big initiative. When we started, you know, as someone who'd worked into schools, I kind of thought programs probably have about a five-year shelf life, you know, and then we're on to the next sort of big thing. Little did I know that was in 1996 that we launched that program. 27 years later, it's still going strong in five countries. And I think it's not about the brilliance of the program because I would be the last to say that it's about the commitment of people to young people, with young people, to not take for granted that they will naturally know what to do or that they will be able to make sense on their own of you know, when big stuff, as I say, happens in their life, when there's major sort of change and and loss and grief um, associated with that. So that's Seasons for Growth. McKillop Family Services uh, run that program and they offer that. They have agreed and they have stayed with that and I'm so grateful to them that no child who would benefit from the program would ever miss out on it. And so that's really been the, the sort of joined up efforts around that. Again, it's another we, not a me, but it was a privilege for me to to be able to lead that work and to continue to lead it. I still train a lot of the trainers. We've had various adaptations of that. The Stormbirds Program for Natural Disasters was one of them. I'm currently working on a major project which is looking at seasons for growth in a post-suicide postvention context in schools. So it's now being used not during the immediate sort of crisis following an event in schools but afterwards so that young people in high schools have a place to go where they're able to learn about, learn knowledge and skills that will assist them with change and loss and grief in their lives. It's not about the event but it is about, you know, the, the, the ripple effect sometime of those events and we don't know who's impacted and we don't know for how long. Mm. 
You said a little bit earlier where you mentioned support networks in children and young people's lives. I was curious as to what usually makes up a young person's support network. What does that look like for them? Trusted adults certainly are part of that network. Their peers are really important and it can be a tricky issue because sometimes we can assume that young people are adept at being able to create networks that are supportive with um, their peers and that just doesn't happen for all young people. So anything that we can put in place to understand and help address that I think is really important. One of the things that we learned early on in the research that we were doing in schools was when Always remember this. I remember where I was. I remember the room filled with a lot of stakeholders, you know, education stakeholders and others. And I'd asked specifically for young people to be part of this consultation about what helps, what can schools do to help them when they go through a, a difficult time. And I always remember this young fellow getting up and saying, a teacher who knows me and likes me. And you could have heard a pin drop because I think that summed it up. The little things, when it comes to support, the little things are the big things. So we have to be really mindful that while it's really important to keep investing in good counselling services and keep investing in good mental health services and all of those things that young people need, it can't be at the cost of those everyday routine things that we do that we may have absolutely no idea out there in the community the impact of those things, but being able to know, and young people can describe it beautifully. They can describe the look that a teacher might give them or a, you know some other adult they might be working with that actually tells them that they understand that they're not getting you know X, Y, and Z in, might be work in a classroom, it could be, be something else. It's the principal who knows my name. It's the welcome of a morning. It's the asking me who won footy or netball or whatever on Saturday. It's those routine sorts of things that people will say. So when we always ask, and we often do, as we often do, we don't say who is your go-to person, meaning we want a name, but we, we do ask kids about whether they've got a go-to person that they can, you know, when things get tough. And it's really interesting, the number of kids who will say, there's a teacher who knows me and likes me, gets me, anticipates me, helps me to regulate. If sometimes, you know, I'm having a really bad day, doesn't ask me too many questions when they know that's not the right time to ask them, but, you know, just amazing. And we've got so many of those people out there and sometimes I wonder whether they know the phenomenal difference that makes for kids just to be there. Mm, Which if any of my old high school teachers are listening, there's a couple out there who definitely got me through high school and definitely got me through the tough times and all it took was one or two teachers out of that entire institution that I think made everybody's experience so much more bearable. Beautiful beautiful example yeah so you've mentioned a couple of times the stormbirds program would you be able to go into a little bit more depth as to what that looks like 
Sure, yeah. Well, the Stormbirds program grew out of the request following natural disasters that we would introduce the Seasons for Growth program because they knew that natural disasters mean loss and they mean change and for a lot of people they mean a lot lot of grief. And so what we decided to do at that time was to get that research done that I mentioned before that was looking at what is it that children can tell us about their experiences and then to take what we knew is the tried and tested framework. Seasons for Growth has had so many independent evaluations that have been done now that have told us that it works, has been able to identify those those benefits. So we thought, how can we capture that but recontextualise that in terms of natural disasters and what happens there? So the Stormbirds program, Stormbirds, of course, is a, you know, we know that the eastern coal is the Stormbird and we know that they can always give warnings when there's a natural disaster coming. We know that they can also, they always come back to rebuild. And so that's what it's really about. It's about the rebuilding. So it's not eight sessions like Seasons for Growth. It's just four. It's not required that it needs to be in a small group. It's something that can be run with a whole class. And after the floods up here, Stormbirds was, you know, implemented across the footprint, you know, across the whole, all the LGAs that were were impacted had the Stormbirds program running. But again, it's that same principles, if you like, that we provide a forum. It's not counselling. It's not therapy. It is therapeutic, but it's not therapy. It's education. It's learning about, learning about, learning about. So it's all about being able to acknowledge what's happened. It's being able to look at the feelings that's and, and all the emotions, the other reactions that people have had. And then it's also about skilling them to manage those and then also being able to look at ways that they can support each other and support their families. So so again, it's been one of those ones that we didn't know. I mean, we actually hoped that stormbirds wouldn't be needed, but sadly and regrettably with natural disasters, it's a tool that can be easily implemented in schools and in agencies and other settings. It has been kind of part of the movement, you know, through the primary health networks, building resilient communities. So there's a lot of community agencies that also run the program. So same principles, just giving kids a forum where their voice can be heard, their experiences can be acknowledged, skills can be learned, laughter can be had. You know, sharing those experiences are really important because that big learning that, you know, as I said, right from the get-go with the seasons work and then with the Stormbirds work, when you ask young people, how is that? They say, will often say things like, I'm so glad to know I'm not the only one because it's a pretty lonely journey if you grow up thinking that you're alone with those experiences, that there are not others that have shared those experiences and are not prepared to learn and to, you know, support one another. Mm. So we only have time for one more question. I wish we could go on for hours and hours, but I know that the clock is ticking away. The last question is about your award that you won. So you received an Officer of the Order of Australia Medal in 2018 for your service to higher education um, in the area of children's studies. What was that like for you? How did that feel to receive that medal? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Um, 
Look, look, I'll be honest. I, I was totally overwhelmed. You know, you know when you see people who get these awards in the community when it's I don't know whatever Australia Day or Queen's Birthday, and they'll often say, you know, that they they um, were honoured, but felt you know very humbled by that. And oftentimes we all feel very undeserving. Well, it was kind of times a hundred, I guess, that I experienced that. But River, to be really honest, what overwhelmed me most was in that moment when I looked at that, I even get a bit emotional when I talk about it, now I hadn't realised that, but, but when I had a look at that, I could feel the presence of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of good people <laughs> that I've trained in the Seasons for Growth program that I have undertaken research with. I thought about the thousands of children in good faith who've participated in our research to try and shed light on what it is that might make a difference in their lives. I thought about my family and the way that they have really backed me in an unwavering way to be able to kind of do some of this um, work. But I especially thought of all those people out there in the community who day in and day out, they're the unsung kind of heroes or heroines of the community, uh, really. So for me, it was recognising them, recognising all of those that get on with the job of finding better ways of working collaboratively with children and young people. And as someone said to me a long time ago, I was working in Ethiopia at the time and I asked one of the volunteers over there about, you know, what keeps them going. And she says, she said to me, when we leave this place after years of being there in their case when we leave this place she said I tell myself if I've made a difference for one child then I've made a difference and I think you know there are so many people out there making a difference and that's the note I think I'd like to finish on is to say a huge thank you the world needs you and thank you so much for being here today and thank you so much for all the amazing work that you've done and the collaborations that you've gone through as well. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you, River. If this podcast raises any issues for you, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. We would like to acknowledge the Widjibal Wyabal people of Bundjalung country as the traditional owners of this land. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging.